how do we go from ooh to oh uh-huh. to mm. ah? Rather than judging and saying, oh, well, what? A, why are they wearing those clothes mm-hmm. or what? whatever one comes up with, it becomes more an investigation, an inquiry, yeah. have you? And then uh, it becomes, I want to know the answer, motivation theory. They develop an understanding rather than making a judgment. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Ali Muller joins us from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to discuss intercultural proficiency and how language learners can take on the role of cultural anthropologists for greater success and deeper engagement in the classroom and beyond. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to have Ali Muller in the studio today. Dr. Muller is Edith S. Greer Professor of Language Education at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She's on campus as part of our monthly LRC speaker series and gave a talk titled Pathways to Language and Intercultural Proficiency. We will extend our conversation about this topic on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Ali. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. So you gave a very interesting talk earlier today about pathways to language and intercultural proficiency. Before we dive into that, can you please talk a little bit about who you are, your background, the research that you do? Sure. Um, basically, my first profession was really as a Germanistin, which is I, my field was German literature, 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, published a book on Heinrich Böll called The Woman is Survivor, mm. which I loved. But mm-hmm. I soon discovered that when I had a seminar of three people, two of whom were native Germans, that maybe I wanted to extend <laughs> a little more about language learning and teaching yeah. and wanting to figure out how we can get kids motivated kids especially of color to Mm -hmm. take languages. This has been quite a while ago. So literally walked over to the College of Education found a series of courses that had to do with how you teach language, which I had never had before, Hmm. and became very intrigued and ended up going into the public school system, worked in uh, thinking I would be there a year, kind of looking at why is it students of color are not taking languages, Mm -hmm. and ended up staying 11 years and doing research with them on uh, what are some things that work and don't work? Mm-hmm. What um, And that research was absolutely compelling to me, and it allowed me to really build a research agenda in that yeah. arena. And then uh, eventually went to, back to college uh, teaching, uh, where I became a professor of foreign language education in the College of Education and Human Sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, my research agenda certainly changed, because there... Um, I needed to get a pretty strong background in qualitative and quantitative research as well as mixed methods, which has now become one of my passions, Mm -hmm. and that is what is the research methodology that we need to use to really get at the classroom level Mm -hmm. to my research is more, I do primary research in schools, but mainly with the idea of how does that translate for the language classroom? Mm -hmm. How Mm -hmm. can this help the practitioner? Could we get a quick summary of your talk for our listeners who might not have been there? Sure. 
I think by and large, when we talk about language, people think about only about the language, like the message that they're giving. Mm -hmm. And I think even more important than giving the message is how is your message being received? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we've all experienced that at one point or another where we meant to say something. I think of the example from Michigan, Angelica, Mm -hmm. uh, where on the way to my keynote there a few years ago, (laughs) one of my students saw me. I didn't know he was there. And he says he was on the telephone and uh, it was Jimmy Moorhead, in case you're listening, Jimmy. And he says, oh, hold on a second. Um, My old professor is here. I want to just say something to her. And I went, my old professor. (laughs) And I looked at him and he goes, oh, I didn't mean that. I mean my previous. And so it was the perfect opening Uh for my speech, you know. And Jimmy was in the audience, of course, red face. Um, But I think the whole idea of bringing that, uh, the pragmatism piece into it, uh, developing in learners the ability to develop what uh, Byram calls the difference between a tourist and a sojourner. You know, a tourist is someone who goes to a foreign country, has some preconceived notions already of what to expect, and basically remains unchanged. However, a sojourner equipped with language and the ability to observe and really uh, be able to interpret what they see and then act accordingly— That is a sojourner because you can become educated Mm -hmm. and you can have dialogue. And so the really important part oftentimes is more the interculturality piece Mm. than sometimes even the language. I mean, you remember a cultural guff more than you do a grammar mistake Mm -hmm. because it's immediate and you've just really messed up. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm here to kind of talk about how can we... Teachers have a problem with teaching culture. They're, they're not sure that they know enough. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't know the methodology for how to introduce it. Um, and sometimes those topics are sensitive and can cause some um, dissonance in the classroom, shall we say. Sure. Um, and so what I've basically here is to kind of share a theoretical framework that I have um, put together based on the research in the field that allow classroom teachers to introduce interculturality in a way that puts the learner in the role of a cultural anthropologist, Mm -hmm. someone who discovers knowledge. And so that involves a bit of a shift in paradigm. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm here to talk about today. Can you give some examples of this placing the student in the role of a cultural anthropologist, what would some problem and task-based approaches be? What what can educators actually do in the classroom to foster this? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I would I would I like to work with images for one thing, mm-hmm. especially if they're authentic. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I do is I have a picture of a uh, two women from an Asian culture. I don't show their faces, but the one woman is giving another woman an, a red envelope that's very ornate. They're dressed up in very ornate clothing. Mm-hmm. And I have the students actually say, first example, I just want you to observe. What do you see? Just observe. Don't say anything. Don't share anything. And now I want you to write down what you observed. Mm-hmm. So I want them, I want to develop that dispassionate view on them, mm-hmm. not judgment, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that it becomes observation. And now here's my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And then I want to explore some possible explanations for what I'm seeing. 
why do I think that? And then when they when they look, for example, I would facilitate, for, for example, when they're observing, I'd say, what do you see? Mm-hmm. Well, I see two women, okay. Well, one's older than the other. How do you know? Well, look at the hands. Mm-hmm. And then I say, okay, well, there's this red envelope and... Someone will say, well, I think they do that in China at New Year's. Um, oh, and so it becomes kind of a sharing, a, a building a, a community of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And then after they've um, stated what they, what they observed and they've thought of why they think what happens, what explored some ideas, the next thing is to share with a group of others and come up, the, each of whom have had an idea of what they think they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And then they have to decide which is the most logical explanation and decide which one they're going to bring forward. Hmm. And then, rather than giving them an answer, which I never do, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is you give them resources. So maybe there's an interview that they have to conduct. Maybe there's an interview on a videotape. Maybe there's a podcast about this. Maybe there's a text. Uh, Maybe there's a website they can go to. So they become what I call cultural anthropologists. They discover the knowledge and bring it back. And so this really allows them to look at... Um, rather than judging and saying, oh, well, what? why are they wearing those clothes mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. what? whatever one comes up with, it becomes more an investigation, an inquiry, yeah. have you? And then uh, it becomes, I want to know the answer, motivation theory. And so they're engaged cognitively mm-hmm. in with their peers as well as, as really looking at things. And then they develop um, an understanding rather than making a judgment. Mm -hmm. But before I do anything like that, I always have them look at their own culture first to Hmm. really get the, you know, the diversity within their own culture because... I had them do a survey, I remember, when I taught in the schools of what do you think most Germans eat, for example. So <laughs> what did they come up with? Bratwurst, yeah, right? Da- they eat sauerkraut. Yep. And so then, um, and then the German partner school said, what do you think all American, what Americans' favorite food is? And mm-hmm. of course it was. French fries and hamburgers. You got it. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> and so then they actually conducted a survey. The German, uh, the English teacher in Germany conducted mm-hmm. a survey of what they eat, and I conducted a survey, none of which included any of those things. (laughs) And it was like lasagna and spaghetti Uh and, you know, and so then we talked about that. So we can't really make any generalizations, you Mm -hmm. know, beginning with those kinds of things, looking within first of the diversity within, and then once that's recognized, well, you can't really make those kinds of judgments about another culture as well. So when your students did these explorations, um, looking maybe at websites or listening to podcasts, would that happen in the target language or does that depend on oh, the Oh, absolutely. Level? And I think that's the big problem. You know, we know from research that the reasons teachers don't teach culture First of all, they don't think they're experts. Mm -hmm. Second of all, they don't know how to teach it. Mm -hmm. And third of all, we know they then use L1, first language. Um, And so that's been exactly... So you have to... The curriculum design responsibility lies with the teacher. And remember, it's not always the text. It's the task. Mm. So... 
if you're, for example, listening to a podcast, you might give them a checklist and just what are the things that you're seeing, mm-hmm. okay? it's They don't have to understand every word, sure. but you have to, that's where the expertise of the teacher comes in that determines what is that task going to be? Am I working with words? Am I working with sentence? Am I working with connected sentences, with connected discourse, or am I working with paragraphs? Yeah. Am I novice, intermediate, or advanced level of proficiency? So you have to, that's part of the responsibility of the teacher Mm -hmm. to really be able to use it and navigate it in a way that it becomes comprehensible. What can we do to hone skills in teachers to convince them to make the leap to take such an approach? Well, I think the... um, model that I that I've come up with based mm-hmm. on the work of Darla Deerdorf, uh, who did a lot of work in interculturality, looking specifically at interculturality in business, because that's where it's important. A cultural goff in business can end your deal very quickly. <laughs> And so I've built on that, I think, really training Uh, first of all, in the pre-service, making yeah. it, making that a big piece of the teacher training Absolutely. period, teacher yep. development phase, the pre-service phase. And then also uh, doing a variety of professional development offerings, um, also conducting action research. I love to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, exploratory practice, what, what, you know, pre- and post-surveys and... and motivation level and level of engagement, these kinds of things that that teachers can do very quickly with learners, even sampling of interviews of sure. mid-high, like a sampling of, of learners, mid-high and low achievers, how mm. are they reacting? Those are the kinds of things I think that allow us then to see the impact that it has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. How do you change your teaching and student tasks at varying levels of instruction? Another good question. Um, I think that you scaffold, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime. This is really where um, the whole idea that ACTFL has taken, they have developed intercultural can-do statements mm-hmm. looking specific, though that are very clearly aligned with the proficiency scale, mm-hmm. right? It's not just the language. It's also measuring interculturality. Mm-hmm. And they're using two categories, interpretation and interaction, or, inter, you know, interpersonal mm-hmm. interaction. And so, again, at the novice level, you're looking at things like identifying. I can identify the monuments of uh, in Berlin, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. some of the monuments in, in Berlin. And, and then the next level would be, I can say, when those were built and describe the monument. And then the next level would be, I can analyze why this was built uh, and for what purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you move up the scaffolding layout. It's the task, again, that's important. They move from things like identify, to describe, Mm -hmm. to analyze, to synthesize, to evaluate. And then it gets more and more moving from the concrete to the abstract level. So usually, typically in, in, you know, college even, um, you stop at the advanced level, although in graduate school, obviously, you would go on. But those are all clearly aligned with the proficiency scale. So that kind of helps determine. Yeah. How teachers and these can-do statements are—they've um, been tested. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I did a five-year study mm-hmm. <laughs> with them and with 23 school districts. And let me just say, I'm still alive to talk about it. <laughs> um, would I do it again? I don't know. Um, but we really showed that when you use these can-do statements, um, and this was on the language piece, when mm-hmm. the kids are trained to set their own goals. 
they achieve significantly higher in all skills. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting piece of all of this is that when we did an ex post facto study after the fact, where we looked at schools that did, or students in schools that did not do the the can do statements, they did significant. Uh, the students that had the can dos did significantly better in grade point average, mm. in mathematics, in science, in math, and in reading, mm. which means that those skills they're learning in the language classroom are transferred to the other yeah. disciplines. So that was, and they, the profiles were about the same. And so these are the kinds of things that really help com- show us in a compelling way the importance of what we do in the language classroom mm. by using standards and, and mm-hmm. align, aligning our curriculum with the standards and, more importantly, the assessments mm-hmm. that are aligned with the standards yeah. as well. Well, and I think having your students act as cultural anthropologists also is a transferable skill to mm-hmm. other areas, mm-hmm. too. Right, because you want to build. Uh, I remember the first time I took a group. I don't know if either one of you ever took a group of students to Germany. I yeah, did. I did. And yeah. the first thing I would see is all this negative. You know, this is like, is this like rare beef? I said, yes, it's called beef tatar, but it's, it's not delicious. just rare. It's yeah. made with special beef, and it's got all. The, I'm not eating that. Uh-huh. Okay. More so, for me. <laughs> I was thinking that, too. Um, and so I said, well, and then, of course, I had one young man said, I'm going to try it. And he said, you know, this is pretty good. Oh, nice. And so I thought, hmm, how do we go from ooh to oh uh-huh. to mm. ah? <laughs> and that has been my light motif. Okay? That should like be a that. T-shirt. I yeah. should. O to ah. Uh. Also work nice as a sort of embroidery. You know, have yeah, it framed yeah. in the over the hearth. <laughs> exactly. And so I want them to be dispassionate in mm-hmm. in their observations mm-hmm. and remove themselves to a more objective place, mm. yeah. which is really a challenge. Yeah. Especially for that age bracket. Sure. Um, but, you know, that's why I came up with this theoretical model mm-hmm. um, that's built on Deardorff's model um, that really puts them in the place of observers. They become noticers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they notice something, they don't judge it so much. Right. And so they're more willing to immerse themselves in it. Right. Yeah. And, and you're developing that curiosity with the explore an, uh, um, a reason for what you think you see. Uh-huh. And so then they're already engaged, and then they want to know. Mm-hmm. And so you want to pique their interest, so to speak. And that's part of interculturality. Why, mm-hmm. why are they doing it like this? I think I've always told the story. I think you've heard this, Angelica. When I was in um, ninth grade, I made a trip to Germany. My parents sent me to Germany, and I was at a train station in Bremen. Mm-hmm. And my aunt and uncle were picking me up. But in the meantime, I decided to get a soda out of the soda machine. And so I drank the soda, and then I saw these, like, five, six, seven refuge cans. And I thought, well, that's kind of stupid. Why do we have all these refuge? You know, (laughs) here's me, 14 years old, making these decisions. And so I thought, well, I'll just take one and throw it in. I'm beginning to throw it in. An older German woman comes up to me, (laughs) speaking loudly and slowly, realizing I'm a foreigner, (laughs) and says, Nein, nicht hier. And I thought, ooh, I grabbed my bottle and I took off and I waited for my aunt and uncle and I got into the car and my aunt says, what, 
well, what are you doing with this bottle? Why didn't you put it in? I said, well, some woman came up to me when I tried to put it into, and my little first grade cousin interrupts me and she says, oh, that's what we learned in first grade. That's recycling. And we have like nine different categories. <laughs> we have like brown glass and uh -huh. green glass. Yeah. And I said, well, why are you doing that? Why don't you just have one? And she said, oh, because. And she gave me this wonderful explanation. She's learned it in school. Mm -hmm. So I was there for four months. And during that time, I saw everyone practicing that. I began to read about it. I saw shows on TV. And pretty soon, intercultural, it transformed my thinking. Mm -hmm. So I began from ooh to, oh, that's interesting. I see why they do it now. And then I went back home and I became an avid recycler. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized how important it is for the future of our planet mm -hmm. to conserve. And I became kind of an obnoxious neighbor um, <laughs> in wanting everyone around me to do the same. And I think that's kind of where I'm at is, is transforming the way we think, building equality between cultures rather than in a demeaning or a yeah. dismissive more way. That's wonderful. Yeah. Do you have any advice for instructors and also maybe for students how they can advance language and intercultural proficiency? Absolutely. Um, first of all, don't be afraid mm -hmm. to try things, okay? Mm -hmm. That's what we're there to do. Um, And when you're, I, there's a little acronym that I have put a, come up with. It comes, I mean, the acronym I created, but the entire theory comes from ACTFL. I call it FACT. Figure out what's your function. Mm -hmm. What do you want kids to be able to do? Mm -hmm. Okay? What do you want them to be able to understand at the end of this lesson? A, a is for accuracy. It's mm -hmm. FACT. A is for accuracy. Is it comprehensible? Not necessarily correct, mm -hmm. but comprehensible. And see, what's the context that we're talking mm -hmm. about here? And then T, the text type that we're going to use. Are we talking words, sentences, mm -hmm. simple sentences, dialogue, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Okay, and so if you use that fact, you can say, what do I want kids to do? And you have to then understand that's novice, intermediate, advanced, right? Mm -hmm. Those proficiency levels that you want to get to. And then create performance-based task. Mm -hmm. Okay, and task-based learning mm -hmm. is yep. really the direction at the classroom level. Yep. Being able to have kids participate in a task, like I explained with the two Chinese women mm -hmm. with the red envelope, mm -hmm. uh, which was a wedding, actually. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, but getting the kids to actually perform a task so that they, I can see how much they've grown in their understanding, that they can actually create yeah. with language and accomplish a function. Mm -hmm. Can I describe my best friend? Okay. Can I, um, can I understand why Germans call Waldsterben acid rain? Why do we call it acid rain and why do they call it Waldsterben, which means the dying of the forest? Mm -hmm. Well, they're humanizing nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why? Well, because their perspective is that nature is something dear and near to their value system, Yeah. right? And we're more into the scientific chemical piece of it. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of something very simple like, let's take a look at American money. Who's on the, whose mm -hmm. pictures? Mm -hmm. Okay, Lincoln, Washington. Mm -hmm. So yep. it's, that's the product. The practice is to put them on the money, 
which we value. Mm -hmm. And then what does that tell us about what we value? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let's take a look at the euro. Mm -hmm. What's on the euro? Certainly no political figures. They're architectural, Mm -hmm. they're musicians, Mm -hmm. they're things from arts and, right? And so... Just even something as simple as the money can tell you something about the value system. You Mm -hmm. can get at the perspectives. So using simple artifacts, using images are a wonderful resource because, like, for example, if I were to say to you, Angelica, I'm going, if I'm a typical New Yorker, I'm going to stop and get some bread on the way to work today. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're picturing this soft bread that's wrapped in this... um, transparent wrap that has a little code on it, right? (laughs) And if you're in Germany or in France, you're thinking of bread in a completely different context. And now we're hungry. So you can use, yeah, me too. Missing Paris. Uh, (laughs) I just got back from Morocco. I love love their bread. But, you know, then giving them a simple picture of the bread in Mm -hmm. an authentic context, right away they're already learning some culture. You know, it isn't necessarily the way that we what we think. So images are a way, uh, task-based instruction, where a clear function becomes um, the end goal that Mm -hmm. you can demonstrate and use. And actually, those performance-based tasks is really a pathway to proficiency. Obviously, in a classroom, you're in a regulated controlled environment so it's not proficiency it's practiced and so but if you do task-based instruction it can be a pathway to proficiency because you Mm -hmm. can anticipate Mm -hmm. something and recognize it when you're in an authentic spontaneous situation Mm -hmm. with a native speaker those are great suggestions yeah um ali this has been great before we sign off We'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak or have learned, are learning, or want to learn. So, My favorite word is Waldeinsamkeit. <laughs> it was also Thoreau's favorite word. Oh, oh. interesting. And, of course, what it means um, is uh, the solitude that one finds in a forest. Ah. The, the solace, um, the ability to reflect and the the quiet calm of the forest. Um, it to me, it just encapsulates kind of where I find myself mm-hmm. wanting to be. Yep. That's my favorite word. Love it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Ali. You're welcome. It's been fun. Next week, you'll hear from Dan McKee, Carl Rosen, and Aparna Ghosh from the Cornell University Library. They put together an exhibit on manga titled Storylines, Visual Narratives in Japanese Pop Culture. Hear more about the exciting comic book universe and some ideas of how to integrate the exhibit into your teaching. Until then... Auf Wiederhören! Tschüss! Ah. <laughs> nice! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners. And do stay tuned for our next episode.